Well, if you will, go ahead and make your way over to Psalm 131. Uh, as you see in your bulletin, I originally pre- planned to preach two psalms today uh, because they're both really little psalms, and so I thought this should be fine. Um, and then I really got digging into both of them, particularly Psalm 131, uh, and I realized either this is going to be the longest sermon ever, right? Um, or I was going to have to start cutting down and really skimping on Psalm 131. And I don't want to do that because I, I want to, my desire is to preach God's word to you faithfully. I, I want us, us to feast on these Sunday passages that we come to, not, not just nibble in little ways and, and move on. Uh, so all that to say, disregard uh, Psalm 134 as you see it in your bulletin. We're not going to get there. And also, right, don't panic when you're like, I haven't even covered 131 yet. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, I'll probably combine that with another psalm next summer, um, another small one, and then I'll, I'll probably give this whole explanation again and not preach it, but uh, we'll see when we get there. So, uh, so then this psalm today, 131, uh, falls within this collection of 120 to 134, and, and these are called the Psalms of Ascent, okay? These are psalms that were sung by, by Jewish pilgrims as they would make their way traveling to Jerusalem, to the temple for, for worshiping the Lord there. Uh, and, and they're called the Psalms of Ascent, like going up, right? Because Jerusalem and the temple, they're on this hill. So at the last part of their travel, their journey, their pilgrimage, they begin to go uphill. And as they're singing these songs, right? Um, and, and, and so these are the songs they're singing, right? As, as they're running up that hill, um, or, or probably just walking up that hill after all that journey. These are, um, and, and they're always done during these, these great feasts. There were three great feasts in, in Israel. Uh, they, the first one you might consider, I'll put them out of order actually here, but the Feast of Pentecost, which remembers the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. They would all gather together for that. Uh, and then there was the Feast of Booths. Uh, how many of you don't know what a booth is? Okay. Now, you all know what booths are? Okay. Uh, good. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacle, and, and this is where they celebrated the wandering in the wilderness uh, when they were living in booths, or what we call tents, but you already know that. Uh, so no surprises there. Uh, and, and of course the Passover, right? This is considered kind of the biggie. Uh, this is when they remembered God delivering them from, from slavery in, in Egypt. Our, our, our Lord Jesus, when he was a young boy, if you remember, took an annual trip with his parents uh, in, into Jerusalem. One of those is particular is recorded. Uh, and on that journey, just to think about this, like our, our Lord, as a young boy, this psalm that we're looking at today, this is one of the psalms that he and his family and, and so much more of that covenant family would have been singing together as they entered in, as they saw Jerusalem and the temple from a distance and, and made their way there. So, so that's what we're looking at today. So if you will... Uh, Get Psalm 131 already in front of you, right? And we're going to read that. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a winged child with its mother, like a winged child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we seek to understand this beautiful psalm this morning, I am asking that you would enlighten our our minds for that purpose. Uh, I'm asking that you would push out all distractions, that we would 
we would desire to know what this means, to desire to, to understand um, how this changes things for us, how this changes us. Uh, Father, may we also just come to this psalm, Psalm 131, as it truly is, not merely the words of, uh, of, of David, but, but ultimately your words. Uh, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Charles Spurgeon, right, the, often called the Prince of Preachers, uh, said in, uh, of Psalm 131, he said, This is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest psalms to learn. And he, he says that because Psalm 131 uh, is this, this call to, to you and I to, to mortify, to, to kill pride within us, right? Pride that resides within our hearts in, in all of its various forms. I've already mentioned it, right? But King David is the, the, the author of this psalm. And, and while, you know, based on what we've seen David in the, in the past do in many of the psalms, right, you, you kind of expect to hear David here just pouring out his heart, confessing his sin of pride to the Lord, and, and that's surprisingly not what he's actually doing here. In fact, it's a little weird what he's doing here, right? Because, I mean, what we see in this first verse, right, is this, this threefold declaration to the Lord that, Lord, I'm not prideful. That's what he's saying there, right? And, and you begin to wonder, can, can someone even do that? Can you just stand there and proclaim, you know, I'm not prideful at all? Would, would you believe me if I, I stood here today and I, I said something like that? Hey, I just want you to know I'm, I'm not prideful. You might be, but I'm not prideful, right? I am just super humble. It sounds a little prideful, doesn't it? Listen, I, I, I don't know that anyone who God has thoroughly freed from pride and given true humility would actually stand up and declare it like that. We, we wouldn't expect that at all. And, and However, in, in Numbers 12.3, right, there's this description of Moses. Let me read it to you. It says, now, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And meek, right? That's a form of pride, or humility right there. So he's saying, here, here is this statement that's saying, you know what? Moses is the most humble of all the people on the entire planet. And you think, well, not a big deal. It's a nice compliment, whoever said that uh, to him, except how many of you know who's the author of Numbers? All right, shout it out for me. Moses, right? That's a little weird now. Moses is the one saying this about himself. And, and I know, right, your, your cynical heart's like, well, he must not have said that. He must have been dead, and someone else is writing that about him at this point, uh, right? Or you're thinking, right, what an incredible narcissist Moses is. He was totally wrong when he says this, except for this, right? Moses is carried along by the Holy Spirit to write that. Uh, that's the case with David here as well. And, and understand, he's not boasting, right? What I did a minute ago, that's, that's boasting, but... He is not looking, saying, you know, look at me, look how humble I am. He's, he's praying to the Lord, he's speaking to the Lord, but, but he's also speaking a truth that the Lord wanted recorded. That the Lord wanted his people on their journey to Jerusalem to, to hear, to know, to, to, to see, to be encouraged by. Now, that the Lord wants the, for the rest of history, right, for his people, the church, to know. And so when we come to things like this, we need to stop being so cynical. Okay? It's reality. That's actually what's true here. Now, now then the first thing that David says to the Lord is this. He says, my heart is not lifted up. It's, it's not, you know, exalted, right? The, the, the heart in Scripture, it's a lot like our, our mind uh, 
It's what you might call your, your inward self in some regard, our, our character. It's kind of that core aspect. And, and David is saying, my, my heart, right, at, the, at that central location, it, it is not self-exalting. It, it's not filled with pride, Lord. It's not. And, and then we see his second declaration, right? My eyes are not raised too high. Now, don't picture it this way. You and I tend to think like eyes raised. We think, well, I'm gazing upwards, like looking upwards, um, because that's often the picture. But the picture here is actually of someone who has been raised themselves up upward, including their eyes. Their physical eyeballs have been raised, right? Maybe even placed themselves in the seat of the seat of God even, right? And, and now that their eyes are phys- physically raised, they're going to look down on other people. What we're talking about here is, is actually arrogance, which is a form of pride, but it's a form of pride that's not just impressed with self, look how awesome I am, I'm great kind of thing, but it's also degradingly, judgmentally, it looks down on other people or another person, right? If you think someone is just trash because they are uneducated or because they're less educated than, than you, right? If you inwardly sneer at people who you think, well, I'm, I'm far superior morally to them and what a bunch of trash kind of thing, right? Or, or, or someone, because they don't know scripture as well as I do. If, 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 you know, if that just makes you feel better than somebody, like you're superior to them, that, that's arrogance rising up in your heart. There's, this is also what's culturally called racism, right? If you think that you are superior to someone else simply because of the ethnicity that God made you, that is a sinful arrogance in your heart. And we do this in all sorts of ways. Even amongst each other in the church and across churches, right? Uh, you know, but in, in the church, right? When you look at how someone parents their children and you just think, like, that's awful. I'm so much better than that. Or how they choose to educate their children or how they, they spend their money on, on things. I cannot believe they bought that stupid thing. They should be doing it this way. You know, that kind of thing. Or, or, or when you think that you are better just because you attend worship more often. I think it's great that you do. I think it's good for you. It's good for us as a community too, right? But... But, you know, if, if in your heart you are, you're seeing that and, and, and you're just thinking I'm better than that person, that's, that's arrogance. And, and that's just some examples, you know. The real question is what are, what are you actually prone to be arrogant about? I mean, be honest with yourself. Uh, God already knows. You're, you're not, no use hiding this, right? And, and so David then tells the Lord, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous. This is about ambition. This is about contentment. Now listen, ambition is not a bad thing. After all, think about the guy who actually wrote this. He's king of a nation, right? Um, That's some serious social status, king. That's pretty high up in his career, you know. I don't, there's no place higher. Like there's no like kingy king. Uh, Well, there is, but not for him to take, right? Uh, there's no place further in the, in the governmental to, to government to promote to. Uh, and so listen, it is a good thing to be ambitious in, in some understandings of that term, to be proactive, to, uh, to, to work hard at your career, at learning skills, at getting better at whatever it is you do, at, at earning money, right, even seeking success. But any of that can quickly become an idol if we occupy ourselves too much with, with that ambition, or if we become such a, if we begin to live a life of just absolute discontentment with what God has given us at any given time. We, we see an example of contentment with, with God in David's life. If you remember, he was, he was promised to be the king of Israel long before he actually received it. It wasn't a real easy process to become the king. 
Uh, he waited patiently for the Lord to actually make it happen rather than forcing it. It took many years for him to even become a partial king of a, of a segment of Israel, right? And uh, what, seven years before he was actually made the king of, it, of all of Israel? That's a long time to be waiting for some promotion that God has promised you. But, but all the while, he waited, right, on the good Lord's good timing. Now, now David has, has given up trying to, to do these things beyond his control, to try to just force things or, or to do them all for his own glory. David has learned to trust the Lord. And, and probably a more difficult thing, he has learned to, to trust the Lord's ways and to trust the Lord's timing. He's lived out the, the wisdom of Proverbs, th- Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, which is very different than, than we even see, right, uh, Abraham, Father Abraham, right, when he handles the delay of God uh, promising to provide a, an heir. If you don't remember, right, he, uh, a lot of time had, had passed and his wife, Sarai, was, was getting older, older than you'd expect someone to be able to, to have children. And at some point she suggests, you know, you should have a child with my, my servant, this woman named Hagar. And he does. And unsurprising, all of these relationships get incredibly messing. It's all terribly heartbreaking. The Lord is still faithful. The Lord does provide the actual heir, Isaac, right, later on in his own, own timing. But we see just a, a different mentality in how you, you come to these things. Now, the... The rubber meets the road struggle here is when we try to force things that that God hasn't granted us or to try to force them in a timing that God hasn't provided for us. Uh, You know, whatever we want, just just to to ram things through. It's it's a hard lesson to learn, isn't it? When when you feel older than your your married friends and you wonder, so so when is God going to actually provide me with a spouse? Do Do you lower your godly standards? Do you pressure just someone to marry you to, to make this actually happen? Right? Or, or like Sarah, you, you impatiently wonder, why, why hasn't God given me a child yet? That's a very, very difficult struggle to wrestle through, you know, particularly as Christians. There, there are no easy answers here, but what does it look like in your heart to trust God in that struggle? To really trust Him in the midst of it? You know, there, there's other things, the healing from chronic illness, or maybe it's a job promotion that, that you just think, sense, you know, that should be mine. It seems perpetually out of, out of reach, though. Now, another category here would be all the theological questions that, that remain kind of uh, unanswered for us, that remain a mystery for us, when we kind of want to know everything about God, and we feel entitled that maybe we should know everything about God, right? Things that God hasn't revealed, things like you know, did, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons since they weren't born? You know, what, what really happened to the dinosaurs? Why in the world did he make mosquitoes? Or, or more serious questions, right? Like, why did God choose you to, to, to have faith in Christ and not your brother, not your mother, not your friend, or whoever it might be? Or, or what exactly did, did Jesus experience while in the tomb, right? What, what, was the Trinity divided at a moment there? Surely not, but, but how is that so, right? We can't make sense out of that. Or, or how exactly is, is God absolutely sovereign and yet I am responsible for my sin? These theological details that we, we feel entitled to, right? Uh, how often do you run into someone that struggles to have faith because, well, I don't know everything. I haven't been mentally made to be God yet. 
uh, that we just feel entitled to, right? That's, that's pride. You are not entitled to know everything. But remember that you are the creature and only God is the creator. Listen to this in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. He has revealed what we need to know. Not everything, but everything we need to know. And so then, instead of prideful ambition and instead of entitlement, David must humbly trust in the Lord. Uh, On this aspect, uh, James Montgomery Boyce says this. He says, if we are to be true Christians in this area, we must learn to stand against the distorted values of our culture. Knowing that character is more important than career, godliness more important than success, and helping others more important than amassing wealth. And so then, before we look at verse 2, I I do want to consider something here. Um, That's important, right? Was was David just born without pride? Because we tend to talk about people that way, like he's just, he's kind of a prideful person or or he's really a humble person, right? Was, was he born that way or, or, or what, right? And in other words, can we actually change? Can, can wherever you are, the level of pride that you are struggling with, that you're living with, is that something that can change? And it absolutely can. And I hope you don't hesitate to even know the answer to that, right? At the time when Goliath was taunting Israel, David went to his brothers in the battlefield, and, and he's still a boy right at this point. And in 1 Samuel 17, 28, we, we, we learned that uh, when he shows up, his brother, his older brother, is just, he's angry. He's mad that David's there. Kind of a typical older brother thing to the younger brother. But, uh, right, why are you, and he says this, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those, the few sheep in the wilderness? Right, so he belittles them there and also calls them out for not being responsible. Uh, and then he says, I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Now, that word presumption, and sometimes the way things get translated are a little weird, right? It's, it's this Hebrew word that's Zidon, and, um, and it's all about this pride and this arrogance. He's saying, I know that your, your heart is, is prideful. I know that's why you're here. You just want to come watch this stuff. You just want to be here. You want to be part of it. And, and, and we learn there, right, that certainly David is naturally prideful. And, and, and that's not the only place, right? Can you imagine, right, a, uh, later in the strength of the Lord, David slays Goliath, and the people just celebrate David for that. Yes, the Lord, but he gets celebrated too. Later in life, they sang these songs about David, about all the, all the enemies that he killed and body parts he brought back, right? Uh, it, it would be difficult at some point not to believe your own hype as everyone's celebrating you and how amazing you are, undoubtedly David is filled with pride at different points in his life and you go through, you can begin to see that. Uh, The bottom line here though, and and what we see in verse 2, is that David wasn't just magically instantly gifted humility. There's a battle that goes on. And I I say this because I think sometimes we think I'm going to pray for humility and that's it. All right, I've asked for humility, I'll just see. Didn't show up today, so pride today. Right? And, and you kind of wonder, when, when's it going to happen? He had to work hard at subduing his pride, and, and you will have to work hard at it as well, always relying on the Holy Spirit. Not, not passively, though, but actively in, in the fight for humility. That, that's something we've got to act in, right? And, and you can hear, right, his, his active participation. Look at this in verse, where are we at? Two, right? Or verse one, rather. Uh, you, you can hear the struggle that he faced when he says, but I, two, uh, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. We do not wander into humility. 
It must be sought. But, but also, you're not just a prideful person, okay? Don't think of yourself that way. You, you are a person who is prideful, maybe, right? And God can change that. He, he then uses a very unexpected simile here. It's a big English word for the day. Uh, look, look at the whole statement in verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, for you young people or old people who don't know this stuff yet, uh, let me give you an awkward explanation of what this is talking about. Babies get food uh, by drinking milk provided by their mother's breast. At, at some point, this child grows, uh, and he or she must stop receiving their mother's milk. They must switch over to uh, what you and I would call normal food, right? Solid food, bread, potatoes, dino nuggets, that kind of thing that you'd be weaned over to. Um, and, and that transition is called weaning. Now, David's point here is that the process of weaning is a huge struggle for a child, right? Only a mother probably knows this already, right? And it's a huge struggle for them because they expect their mother's milk. They're entitled to it. That's where they're getting subsidence, uh, sustenance, and, and they get very angry when they don't get it. They, they end up in tears. They throw temper tantrums. They, they panic, right? They continue to receive because they want to continue to receive that milk. And, and again, they're panicking because they think they need that milk on some level, right? And, and I'm not saying this really goes through their mind, but on some level, they think, I know better than mom. Why in the world would you not give me this? I need this. And, and you see, weaning was, and it is for many still, one of the first massive struggles for our little hearts after the Lord has brought us into this world. And suddenly we don't get what we want, what we think we need. But David isn't now comparing his soul to a child who is weaning actively. He is, you know, not comparing someone going through that difficult process. His soul is like a weaned child with her mother. What's that like? She's not squirming and fighting. She's content to sit in her mother's arms. Whereas a nursing baby looks to her mother for what she can receive from her mother, namely milk, a weaned child is not merely interested in what she can receive from her mother, but is satisfied just to be in the presence of her mother. Again, James Boyce says this. He says, uh, before David was weaned, he, he wanted God only for what he could get from God. And after he was weaned, having learned that God loved him and, and would care for him, even if it was not exactly the way he anticipated or most wanted, he came to love God for himself. Are you getting this? But before David may have prayed what, what he wanted from God, give me this, God, give me this, God, give me this. Now, now he's praying something like, Lord, can I go where you go? Can I always be this close, right? Can I... Because I trust you, Lord, I, I just want to be with you. And so let me ask you this. Have you, have you yet learned to love God for himself? Maybe a better question is, uh, to what degree at this point in your walk with the Lord have you learned to love God for himself and, and not merely for what you can get from God? Do you ever find yourself just content to be in the presence of the Lord in prayer and, and scriptures. Just, just embracing the, the call of, of our Lord in Psalm 46.10, right? Be still and know that I am God. You, you see the denial of, of pride in, in verse 1 then is, is connected to this, 
the weaned child in, in verse 2 because when we, don't have, when we don't have to compare ourselves to others or to convince anyone that we're better than them, uh, we can have contentment in simply knowing God and simply being known by God. Christians, stop trying to be God. Stop, stop trying to be sovereign. Stop thinking you know better than God. Stop trying to earn righteousness in any sense of that. You're not the Christ. You're not. What we need to, to learn is to learn to be faithful. Learn to rest like a child in, in God's arms. Psalm 131 is not the only place where, where pride is confronted by the Lord in this picture of, of becoming childlike. Uh, in Matthew 18, the disciples of Jesus, right? Jesus, who's literally perfect, keep that in mind. Uh, those disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, hey, hey, Jesus, um, which one of us, or, or who's the greatest in the kingdom of God, right? That's the question. And, and they really mean, like, like among all of us. We were, we've been talking, and, uh, and they're just oozing in arrogance when they ask that question. They, they all think, okay, we're not, we're not you, Jesus, but... One of us is the next, you know, you know, the next greatest here, and it's probably not Judas. Something seems off with him, but, but maybe it's me, right? And, and they're all kind of thinking, maybe it's me. And the Lord doesn't, doesn't answer this egotistical question. <clears throat> Instead, he calls a young child to them, and he, and he says to his disciples, he says this, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself... Like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He calls his disciples, he calls you and I to be like a humble child. It's a big part in our, our walk with the Lord, our, our sanctification. That's, that's why the, the South African pastor, Andrew Murray, told his congregation, he said, that the chief mark of counterfeit holiness is its lack of humility. All right, he's tying that holiness, godliness to humility. He goes on to say, the great test of whether, whether the, the holiness that we profess is, is genuine is whether it results in humility. In other words, if we think we're becoming more godly, more, more sanctified, more, more Christ-like because of things we might be doing in our life or, or seeing in our life, but at the same time we're becoming more prideful than, than humble, it says that sanctification, that's, that's not genuine. That's not what sanctification is. Which is why sometimes we, we wrongly confuse theological knowledge with, with growth in godliness. Now that doesn't mean you shouldn't have theological knowledge. That that's not the answer to this. What, what it means is the stuff you're actually learning, that, that what we might be calling theological knowledge, right? that should be developing a massive humility in us. And as Reformed folks, even, even more so, as we understand the, the way grace works, right? And, and so, so, so listen, we, we must learn to subdue, to mortify the, the pride in our hearts. Pride is a significant sin, and honestly, we, we don't often treat it like that. We're like, well, everyone's prideful, so who cares, right? Or we laugh at it, right? And, and so let me remind you, from Proverbs 16.5, how, how God speaks of pride, he says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. That's why you need Jesus. You see, you see pride's the result of overvaluing ourselves and undervaluing others. 
And I, I know it can be really uncomfortable to, to evaluate ourselves. And so let's just, let's pause for a moment and take a little inventory of your, your heart. Let me ask you these questions. Are you constantly comparing yourself to others? Right? Either better or worse. Are, are you persistently competing with others that you, you must be better than them? Are, are you seeking to, to outdo and outperform those around you? all the time, right? Are, are you discontented with, with God in, in your life? Do you, do you feel like, you know, if he would just turn over the reins of sovereignty to you, you'd do a better job with this? Whether we're talking about the world or, or your life in particular, are you, are you always hungering for more attention or, or more adoration from others? See, these are manifestations of pride. These are, are sins that we're talking about here that need to be killed and that can only be killed as you, you look to Jesus and the strength of the Holy Spirit and as you look to him for your identity, as you look to Christ for your value, not all these other things. And I, I know, right, deep down, you don't want to be prideful. You don't. I don't either. It, it leads to that nasty feeling of just restlessness because, you know, pride leads us to be dissatisfied with what we have and, and overly concerned with what other people have or who they are or, or whatever it might be. On the other hand, humility places others first, and, and more importantly, humility allows us to be content with God's providential leading in our lives. You want that. You need that. See, humility results in a, a weaned childlike contentment that gives us security in the Lord, and thus no longer do we have to prove ourselves to others. Does that sound freeing to you? Aren't you sick of the endless demands that pride has placed on your life? always worried about what others might think of you, always needing to be the best, always afraid even to reveal your sin to a brother and sister in Christ because you care more about what they think of you than you actually care about someone walking along with you in that battle. Pride always condemns you for not being and, and doing more. But, but because of, of Jesus and what he has done for you, because the Holy Spirit dwells within you, when, when, you, when, you, when you hear that demanding whisper of, of pride, right, that, that comes, right, you can just say back to that, no, I'm not the greatest, and that's okay, because I am united with Jesus by grace through faith, and he is the greatest. He's all I need. I, I think what you kind of need to know as a Christian, you, you have been set free from pride. You probably don't believe that, but you have been. You, you can now say, as Paul says in Philippians 2.3, you know, to, to do nothing from selfish conceit or ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You can heed the words of 1 Peter 5.5 where, where we read this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Right? For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourselves with humility. And listen, we are all going to struggle with this, with, with pride differently. We just are, and I, I say that, right? So, so, so don't, don't pride yourself for, for being less prideful than the guy next to you. I, I don't want you to walk out of here today and think, you know what, I sure, I sure hope that he heard that. I sure hope that she heard that, right? Because she sure needs to deal with her pride. It might be true. He or she might, right? But, but so do you. So let's put our focus there. So then there's one more verse, three, right? David turns from speaking to God. 
uh, and he now is, is speaking to God's people. And he says, oh, oh Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Right? Don't, don't put your hope in whatever prideful self-power things you think you might have. But, but be like the weaned child who is content to, to trust her mother. You know, God's people are to be content in the way that we trust the Lord. It's in that place of trust and contentment that Israel and we, the church today, can place our hope in Yahweh forever. Now, I, you're probably thinking, I'm glad he didn't do the second psalm. This has gone on a little while. Um, I want to finish with just with some words that were spoken by John the Baptist. Uh, there's some of my favorite words in, in Scripture. Uh, he, was, he was in the wilderness calling. Uh, he was in the wilderness calling people to repentance. And, and the masses had been coming to him. Right? In, in other words, John the Baptist is popular. Everyone is showing up at his services. Everyone wants to get you know, baptized by him. And there's these masses coming out to them. And, and then you know, one day John's disciples came to him and, and surely in a panic said to him, you know, the, the people aren't coming here anymore. They're not coming to you anymore. They're, they're, they're going over to, to this Jesus guy now. Right? And this is when it's time. Let's, let's figure out our marketing. How do we get them to come back here? That kind of thing. Right? But that's not what happens. And in John 3.30, he responds, speaking of Jesus, he says, He must increase and I must decrease. Such simple words there. Listen, as you begin to evaluate and seek to mortify the presence of pride in your heart this week, maybe those are the words you, you need to be meditating on. Along with Psalm 131. I mean, really, if you really find yourself wanting to, to really address this, I would encourage you, go, go and look up every place you find pride in, in the Scriptures and just begin to study the Word. Right? There's all kinds of tips and things that you can do, but... But the most powerful thing you can do is just get in the Word and begin to, to see what the Lord has to say about it, right? But, but, but the other thing is this, right? Maybe, maybe the words you need to be meditating on again are, are pretty much what we just read. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Lord, Lord God Almighty, you invite us to bring our needs to you, and we are grateful that, for that. But, but we ask this morning that you would empower us to rest in the fullness of your presence. May, may we be like a weaned child. May we find peace and contentment and humility. And may our souls be calmed in the sweetness of your presence. Lord, please convict our hearts if they need convicting this morning. Oh, Holy Spirit, please set us free from the weight of pride and clothe us with humility. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.